Hi, this is Jeannie Drisco bringing you an episode of The Art and Soul of Healing. Today we will be visiting with Dr. Stephen Porges, a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University, where he founded the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium. Dr. Porges is also a professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina. He established the polyvagal theory, a theory that links the evolution of mammalian autonomic nervous system to social behavior and emphasizes the importance of the physiologic state in the expression of behavioral problems and psychiatric disorders. Dr. Porges developed the safe and sound protocol that allows retraining of the autonomic nervous system through the portal of the ear. It's a fascinating discussion, and I'm sure you'll enjoy meeting Dr. Stephen Porges. So welcome, Dr. Stephen Porges, and thank you for joining me on the Art and Soul of Healing. I'm really excited to share with the listeners uh, all about your polyvagal theory and the safe and sound therapy. So thank you very much for inviting me to spend some time discussing these issues that are very close to my heart. (laughs) They're wonderful. You know, I feel like I know you because I've watched all of your SSP training videos and have become an SSP provider myself. So uh, before we get into what SSP and the polyvagal theory are, I want to hear how you got interested in this wonderful theory and therapy. How did you develop it? I've always been interested in the impact of underlying physiological state. And this was even before I was a, even a graduate student. So it's like, uh, what can you read from people's faces? What can you read from their intentions? And there seems to be uh, often frequently a disconnect between the words people say and their intentions. And I was just very curious about what was the underlying substrate that enabled people to be accessible or to be defensive, to be interested in curiosity, or to be kind of like uh, stuck in their own uh, scripts. And it started off that way. And the actual, there's a interesting self-reflection on this because polyvagal theory really was in my life all along. It's just, I didn't have the words or the tools or the metrics to uh, really describe those experiences. And I often talk about my experience as being a musician. And that was when I was younger, I was a clarinetist. And when you uh, play the clarinet, what you do is you inhale rapidly, but you exhale slowly and you listen and you control all the muscles of the face and head. And so what you're doing is actually exercising what later became known as the social engagement system. So I I was performing neural exercises that were helping (laughs) me regulate my state. And then you start seeing the continuity of that type of model with yoga, or especially pranayama yoga, or the breathing therapies that are out there, and even, you know, meditation. So as a teenager, when I was practicing, when I was a real musician then, uh, I was actually uh, exercising these neural circuits, and they were enabling me to be resilient, to be calm, to be creative, and what I used to say, to go on my own little journeys without being <laughs> impeded by uh, what other people would call anxiety or disruptions around you. 
And being a teenager is always a difficult time. And so playing the clarinet was actually giving me a resource to regulate my body. And what playing the clarinet was, if I deconstructed it, uh, I'd say that was, you know, when I was a teenager, when I was like a, a real adult, when I was in my late 40s and developing polyvagal theory, then it, it all made sense because what I was doing was finding the portals, which would be breath and facial expression mm -hmm. and listening, that were regulators of autonomic function. And just think for a moment, we think of autonomic function as being distal to our voluntary control that this is a system that regulates our body and we're not really that much in control of it. And for many people, they're not even aware of it. But polyvagal theory changed that interpretation, said there are portals that you can use to help regulate it, to optimize it, to support your health growth and restoration, and also to honor and respect that there are portals in which you downregulate these systems, but you downregulate them for an adaptive survival function. So it's not like there's a bad or a good state, they're just states that help you achieve different goals. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. And your CV and timeline are very interesting. And this includes primary research to underpin your theories. Uh, I know you've been a longtime recipient of NIH grants, which are not easy to obtain. And recently you completed research in, uh, funded by the NIH. Do you have any preliminary data you might want to share? Well, we're actually publishing data on a new metric, and this is not from those NIH studies. Those are from new studies in which we are documenting that there, you're, I have actually come up with a new metric that really talks about or enables one to quantify the eff efficiency of the vagal break. So the ability of this ventral vagal circuit, this calming circuit to calm us. So in a sense, a metric that's linked to resilience. And it's really uh, becoming quite a remarkable variable uh, because it's merely measured by posture shifts where you challenge the system. So like if you lay down and then stand up and sit down, each of those posture shifts trigger a reflex that changes the vagal regulation on the heart. So your heart rate goes up and down with all these posture shifts. But as your heart rate goes up and down, it's most of the heart rate changes are due to reflexes that affect vagal mechanisms. And what we're able to measure is how efficient that vagal mechanism is in changing heart rate. In a way, how much heart rate change can you get from this vagal uh, regulation before you need to start triggering sympathetic activities? Mm. So a very well-regulated, highly vagally efficient individual can move around, navigate into this world physically, uh, change postures, walk around, do things without needing to stimulate the sympathetic nervous system, just retracting that vagal break. And that's the most efficient way. And it means that we can get up, move around. And then when we sit down, we're calm immediately. But if we had to recruit the sympathetic nervous system, we have to now tell that system, <laughs> please calm down. Yeah. So the research is really, really quite remarkable. But what I wanted to bring in were a couple other factors. One, people with trauma histories, and this is, going to be the world that is really finally, I would say the world is finally acknowledging mm -hmm. uh, that trauma history is a pre-exist, is like a pre-existing condition. Mm -hmm. It's a risk for many other things, but polyvagal theory makes that risk factor not elusive, 
but it really says that risk factor is that the trauma history has destabilized autonomic function. And that pointing it at the autonomic stabilization and function, we can then start talking about interventions that can reorganize that. And that's where we'll get to SS safe and sound protocol uh, and other types of interventions. Mm -hmm. But what we're showing is that people with trauma histories have a very inefficient vagal break People who have uh, severe gut pains or features, let's say, of fibromyalgia mm -hmm. or dysautonomia, it pops up in that variable. Absolutely. Uh, and we're really trying to show that you can then kind of map this into different things. The, the other research that is really going on now, which is really very thrilling to me, and that is validation studies on the effect of the safe and sound protocol mm -hmm. on sensory processing. So... It's, it's it fits the polyvagal theory because the way that we react to the world is really mediated by our physiological state. So if we have good vagal efficiency, good physiological regulation, then the sensory stimuli are regulated, they don't disrupt us. Mm -hmm. So we become hypersensitive in part because our physiology is prepared to detect threat. And if we detect threat, we want to be hypersensitive to potential threats. Mm -hmm. But if our body is in a state of calmness and safety, those cues of sounds and lights, they just kind of pass by. You know, they mm -hmm. occur and everything's all right. So we're finding that using the safe and sound protocol, uh, which is five one-hour sessions, reduces auditory hypersensitivities, improves the ability to extract voice from background sound, reduces visual hypersensitivities. And this is interesting. So now we're going to go to your background as a physician. So mm -hmm. uh, pupillary dilation, if we think of visual hypersensitivities, what are we really talking about? The pupils don't constrict. So the pupillary reflex isn't really working. What are the neurochemical and neuroregulators of pupil diameter? Well, they're sympathetic and parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. And the parasympathetic part of the, of the pupil reflex is the constrictor. So if your parasympathetic and vagal and calming circuits aren't there, your pupils will dilate. <laughs> and so you'll have visual hypersensitivities. And so that's reduced with SSP. And other things are reduced like reduction of gut pain and also curiosity in ingestion, mm -hmm. so selective eating. So you see all these clusters of symptoms, and they're not merely with children on spectrum, which is our first study. Mm -hmm. They're in with adults too. Their bodies get into a physiological state that is really adaptive to respond to threat, mm -hmm. but it interferes with social communication and it interferes with homeostatic function, meaning health. Mm -hmm. Well, I really wanted the listeners to understand that this field is evidence-based, and you certainly have led the way on this. I want to tell you a little bit about uh, myself and that I was a longtime provider of EEG-based neurofeedback for brain training. And what I learned very quickly was I could not train the brain stem or that lower brain or the lower brain structures with neurofeedback. And I happened to upon the integrated, uh, integrated listening system. And I contacted them, but they told me I could not proceed until I looked at your theories and understood uh, safe and sound protocol. And I learned very quickly that there was a route to helping 
that lower brain, the brain stem, uh, through the ears. So let's start with the vagal nerve. Maybe you could describe a little bit to listeners about how the vagal nerve is part of this. Sure. And what we'll move to, actually, let's go back to your neurofeedback first. And my view on neurofeedback is that your body, to be efficient in neurofeedback, to be effective in implementing neurofeedback, the body can't be in a state of defense or threat. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like building blocks. You calm the brainstem, neurofeedback becomes the next portal that becomes efficient. Because if we're not calm, those portals are going to be challenged because the body has to detect cues and react to things that could be harmful under threat. Absolutely. So I'm really pleased that you're, you're, it's working in your, your world, your environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, actually, for over a decade, I've been trying to discuss this with, with neurofeedback practitioners and actually have a project going on in Canada with uh, uh, Michael and Linda Thompson. You might know. Oh, them. I do know who they are, yes. So we have a project there, and the whole agenda was, could you shorten the program of neurofeedback by doing this five one-hour sessions as a preamble to your normal treatment? So could you accelerate outcome? Mm -hmm. And they're conducting this pilot project now. It took a while with all the IRBs in different <laughs> countries. And, Always does. <laughs> but, but it's there, and you know they're just lovely people, so we look forward to seeing that. Well, that's so, wonderful news. Yeah. Now I got diverted and forgot. Oh, that's okay. No, I was want. I want you to start off by telling oh. the listeners how the vagal nerve plays into this. Yeah, I actually want to move the emphasis off the nerve. I think we get uh, distracted by concrete terms, so we think the nerve is doing the work. The nerve is a conduit. It's a highway. It's a communication cable, and it goes in both directions. So I want you to think of the vagus as your primary bidirectional communication pathway between the viscera, the organs of your body, and the brain. So it's, in a sense, it's the brain-body connection. So it's no longer the vagus, it's a brain-body connection. And when we think in terms of stimulating the vagus, again, I want you to think about what that really means. It means that areas in the brain step where the vagus originates start telling the vagus do something going downstream, but I also want people to understand that most of the fibers in this big nerve, and it's a big nerve, mm -hmm. are sensory. So it's your surveillance system of your body, which means that when the body's not doing well, it impacts on the brain. But any therapist, regardless of the subdiscipline, knows that when people don't feel good, uh, physically, they don't feel good mentally, and they're compromised socially, they're compromised in their cognitive functions and abilities. So we don't have a disconnect. We just need a vocabulary uh, of showing how these, these processes are connected. So the vagus is this conduit and polyvagal theory emphasizes that there are two different areas of the brainstem that provide fibers that go efferent, going down from the brain to the body. And the fibers that come from an area called, that is in the ventral part of the the front part of the brainstem uh, called, which I, well, it's not my term, but it's called the ventral vagal complex, has these fibers, and those fibers are myelinated, meaning they react very rapidly. They're coated they're with a fatty substance called myelin, but it gives, it, gives that, those vagal pathways the ability to regulate very rapidly and efficiently 
And those pathways are the ones that go to our sinal atrial node, our heart, mm-hmm. our pacemaker. And they also have the powerful impact of being inhibitory to our sympathetic system. So they become calming, both our heart rate slows up, but they also impact on the sympathetic nervous system. They basically move us out of states of defense. But the, from a polyvagal perspective, that's just background. The exciting mm-hmm. or interesting thing is that those fibers are in part of the brainstem that are regulated or co-regulated with the nerves that regulate the muscles of the face and head. So now we realize that we project our vagal state of our heart in our voice. <laughs> so we're projecting or broadcasting our state. You're saying, I'm safe, come close, or stay away from me. You know, we, we use intonation, but intonation is being driven by another vagal branch called the recurrent laryngeal nerve. And that is really a parallel to what's going to the heart. So we are broadcasting our physiological state. But I would tell you that everyone intuitively knows this. Mm-hmm. We know stay away from people based on their voice, and we know trust people based on their voice. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is this is the history of mammals because the vocalizations were a pathway of communication that enabled the other to either co-regulate or to withdraw from. So we broadcast whether we're safe enough to come close to and whether we're safe enough to co-regulate, meaning talk, listen, uh, role reverse, to calm each other. So that's on the voice. But what SSP or safe and sound protocol gets to that there's another portal. When we are broadcasting in our facial expressivity that we're safe, we're also increasing the neural tone to the middle ear muscles. And guess what happens? Now background sounds are dampened and we functionally amplify human voice. So everyone has the experience, at least when they're younger, is that they go to a bar, it's noisy background, but but they meet people and they hear every word that person's saying, Mm -hmm. and they don't hear anything in the background. And that's those middle ear muscles tensing, filtering out low frequency sounds and amplifying human voice. Now, what happens is that if our body retunes into states of defense or reactions to threat, the neural tone gets retracted because it's very adaptive to pick up sounds of predator. And we have a world where we're under chronic threat. So for many people, their autonomic nervous system is not calm. Mm -hmm. It's out there trying to pick up threat. And now it gets retuned to be defensive. And the consequences of that will be hypersensitivities. Uh, But not just that, it's going to interfere with learning, with socialization and interfere with our ability to socially regulate our physiology. So is it safe to say that the polyvagal theory really explains the whole body state? I think that's just what you said. Is, is that accurate? Well, yeah, I mean, if you want that, that's more grandiose than I would say. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, I would say that the magic of polyvagal theory is that it goes in between the the context of stimuli and our responses. It's what I call an intervening variable. And it's what many of the listeners, if they have taken graduate courses in psychology, they'll learn the word intervening, which is in a sense, the model. It's like stimulus, what the state of the organism is, and then response. Polyvagal theory is a theory about quantifying and respecting and honoring that organismic state. And if you honor that, 
then you can actually start to manipulate the organismic state by making people feel safer and calmer. And now the SR, the stimulus response pathways, become available and efficient. And if we flip back to your neurofeedback world, what you are trying to develop with neurofeedback are really SR patterns. You're trying to regulate the response is now going to be an EEG pattern, but the stimuli can be very varied in terms of your paradigm. But the efficiency of SR patterns being developed means the body has to be in a safe state. And that's why it should facilitate a neurofeedback. That's great. Thank you. And you touched on this, that the ears are really our portal and that the hearing is so important. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, I would emphasize the distinction between hearing and listening. So many people who have hearing sensitivities actually hear perfectly. So you bring them into an audiologist and put them in a sound chamber and they can detect things perfectly. The issue is that when they're in the real world, they can't selectively pick out sounds because their autonomic nervous system is in this state of threat and that retuned their middle ear structures so that the middle ear structures no longer filter out background sounds to enable uh, human voice to occur. So the first issue is difference between hearing and listening. And listening has an intention involved in it. I am listening to you. Now, if you put sound and you uh, do an audio audiometric test on me, I raise my finger. If I hear it, uh, those tones, it's not like it's, it's involved. I'm not asking to, to attend. I'm not presenting myself that uh, in an engagement behavior that it's important for you to listen to me. And when you're testing, no one's saying it's important. Now listen very carefully and don't get distracted by the background sounds. In speech and hearing therapies and assessments, they give you tests like that where you have background sounds and you have to pull out the words. And if the middle ear structures aren't working optimally, words get lost in background sounds. And there are a lot of tests for that. And we're actually showing that the SSP changes that function. You're better able to extract verbal commands so you can, you can actually process language better. Mm. Well, I want to segue to the uh, SSP training tools First of all, what what's the patient hear when they're listening through their over-the-ear earphones? Okay, so the, the first thing is, yeah, they're listening to vocal music that has been computer-altered, but let's talk about why that is. What's the alteration? The alteration to the music was, can you, for, from my perspective, was, can I develop a stealth intervention <laughs> that uses vocal music as the carrier? So can, can I take music and then do certain things to the music uh, that the nervous system can't refuse? So can I find the patterning of, of intonations that the nervous system says, these are cues of safety, I can't refuse them. So when a baby is crying and a mother uses a prosodic voice and, uh, or a lullaby, the baby's nervous system can't reject that. The baby just calms down. Now, mothers are very good at that. Fathers tend to have a little different structure of how they respond to crying babies. Some are very good and some are, in a sense, I would use the term more boundary or discipline based. But those same fathers, if they want to talk to their dog, 
may have this really wonderful prosodic voice where they can talk just like a, a mother ease or infant directed speech, but now to the dog. They'll raise the pitch of their voice, they'll emphasize the prosody, the intonation shifts, and the dog will go on its back like that. And that's because the nervous systems of mammals intuitively know what frequencies are frequencies of safety. And so if we looked at the physics of middle ear structures, we can literally define the frequency band in which that information is being conveyed. So the SSP starts with that and then says, if I know that frequency band, can I develop literally a neural training program of those frequencies? So okay. can I, I used to use the term a treadmill model where one would start with a very little range or short range of frequencies. And then over the progressive sessions, the range gets greater and greater. And by the time they go through the five hours, the system has been challenged and can in a sense be reawakened. So the difference between SSP and other types of interventions has to do with the assumptions. SSP says that I can shift the state of the physiological state of the individual with cues of safety it is not a intervention of neuroplasticity. It's an intervention saying that for most individuals, we have the circuits. They just have to be told in an unambiguous way, come back. And that's what SSP does. And that's why many providers see these remarkable changes in just a few hours, because it doesn't make any sense that the system has, quote, learned anything or been rewired. Basically, it's been retuned, mm -hmm. not because it couldn't, it didn't have the resource. It just didn't have the cues to say, give up the defenses, be who you are, and be that spontaneously engaging individual. Mm -hmm. Well, the training itself is very interesting because the music almost, I would say, cuts in and out. So that's pretty descriptive and goes from an audible level to a very low level. And I, I have people that complain about that and they want to change the volume of yeah. the, the device. So can you speak to that? Well, it, it's not getting softer. What you're getting is fewer frequencies. So it's like with a... Uh, equalizer on, on a hi-fi system for just reducing the amount of energy so it appears subjectively to be softer or louder but it's really the number of frequencies that are actually being passed through part of the windowing and that what your your clients are experiencing are it's to in a sense trigger an intention to listen to try to extract and but what's interesting is the subjective feelings for individuals some individuals when the sound starts to disappear they get sad <laughs> that's and, right <laughs> and when the music comes back there's a smile in their face and the sense of exuberance <laughs> now compo composers have always known that and that's why they shift the the actual tones of music and the volume of it because they're triggering these intuitive aspects of our body we are reaching forward actively with intention to listen and when we're rewarded where in a sense it's a social reward it's coming back to us then there's an exuberance. The intervention is really based upon, I would use term the physics of the middle ear structures. And that is there are certain frequencies that will get in through the middle ear regardless of the status of that middle ear structure in terms of muscle tone. Mm -hmm. 
And, so, and that's called the resonant frequencies of that structure. And so SSP, when it has those very narrow frequencies, which people feel that it's disappearing, it's merely going through the resonant frequency. It's just getting really narrow and just going through. And the trigger, one hopes, is that when the intentionality comes, that triggers the neural regulation of those muscles. So it's like when we change our voice or we lean forward, what we're trying to do with the intervention is get the middle ear muscles to lean forward to hear the voice. Ah, great. And you can probably even see that in the faces of your clients. Absolutely. When they go through that. And what happens is that the challenges are changed dynamically uh, across each session. But over the sessions, the actual band of frequency increases. So it becomes mm -hmm. more I use the term more similar to AM radio. Mm -hmm. So it, it actually, it covers all the frequencies that the nervous system uses to extract meaning in human voice. So, uh, which doesn't mean it. we need real low frequencies or real high one. There are actually certain frequencies that can be used to define the index of articulation or the SSI. So it's the sound speech, no, it's a speech intelligibility index or some, something like that. These are mm -hmm. uh, terms from the speech and hearing community, but they're actually well-defined frequencies. And SSP is really respecting those. And that's why, but they, they have these frequencies based on their own objective empirical data, but it doesn't come from a neurophysiological model. So we could actually define based upon the physics of the middle ear structure, what that range would have been. Mm -hmm. And which means then you can start looking at different mammals who have different sized middle ears and start developing a SSP intervention for different mammals. <laughs> It's so fascinating. I would like to uh, divide this into two uh, sessions, if, if that's okay with you. I want to thank Dr. Porges for providing such a stimulating and interesting conversation. We will pick up next time where we left off in understanding the polyvagal therapy and how to intervene with the SSP. Please join me next time on The Art and Soul of Healing when we continue with Dr. Stephen Porges' interview.